Here at Making Movies is Hard, we want to express our support for the writer strike. We encourage our filmmaker comrades to look into how best they can be allies for the good fight. Please go to WGACONTRACT2023.org to support the cause. Making movies is hard, but casting for your movie doesn't have to be. With Casting Calls America, you can post your open roles for free in over 30 local markets nationwide. And when you post your roles, they will automatically post to IMDb Pro to get even more eyes on your project. All actor submissions are delivered to your user-friendly dashboard, making your casting process easy. You can even search our actor databases and invite actors you're interested in to audition to your project. Actors pay a small monthly fee and have all open roles delivered to their inbox each day. Get your project started today. It's casting made easy at castingcallsamerica.com. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Bissell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker, and my first feature film, The Alternate, is out now on digital, DVD, and Tubi. I'm Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life, and I'm currently focusing on my third, Best Friends Forever. I'm a distribution consultant who used to manage the Creative Distribution Initiative at Sundance. This week, we welcome... Film distribution and marketing strategist slash impact producer slash Liz's mentor, Mia Bruno, on the show. I don't know if you could call someone your mentor. Like, are you allowed to just decide they are? Anyway, Mia's my mentor. She's coming on the show right now to talk about how she got into distribution, her time working at Gravitas, and moving out on her own as a consultant. After that, we play another round of The Game. But first, Ulrich, how are you? I'm doing good. I I don't know, like, if this is just a thing that I've decided, but, like, I pretty much refer to whoever is a mentor in my life as a mentor, whether they have agreed to be such a person or not, you know? (laughs) Yeah, like, Jeff Allard, my producer, is definitely, like, one of my mentors, and he made a huge difference in my career, and I think he probably understands that that's his role or part of his role in our, our relationship, our friendship, but, like... Yeah, big time impact. So mm-hmm. no, I think you should go on and do it. And and besides, like I'm sure if Mia listens to this or when she listens to this, she'll just be like, "Oh my god, I'm touched. I'm honored." That you, oh, you I've told her way. many times that she's oh, my so mentor. She knows. She <laughs> but knows. it feels weird saying it to other people. It's like, and "Have you met my mentor, Mia?" Like it just feels like a strange actualization <laughs> of the term. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I guess it depends on how you word it. Like, I'm like, oh yeah, Jeff, he's a great friend of mine. Also one of my mentors. I think like, if you yeah. you can throw it off casually in a way where it's like not like a weird imposition of a title, you know? Yeah. No, I'm good. Uh, I, you know, I, I think I've been talking about on this the show like the last few weeks or month or two months how busy I've been. But the, the job that I've been on ended today. <gasps> The big, beautiful presentation in Vegas that happened for two hours happened this morning at 9 a.m. It's all done. It went well. There was no errors. It was beautiful. Everyone was happy. The CEO of the company, like in the middle of the the, the presentation, was like, oh, look at this. I just love this rendering. Look at that. Isn't it beautiful? I was like, oh, my God. Like the CEO is like complimenting our graphics like during the thing. That's that, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So, yeah. So, now I feel good about that. It's my daughter's birthday tomorrow. She turns two. That's exciting. I should be able to spend most of the time the day with her due to, like, not having a lot of work to do, which is great. I start vacation officially on Thursday for a week and a half, which is 
equally great. Maybe I can get some writing done, but I mean, my son's going to be born in like a month, basically, from now or less, or probably. Uh, <laughs> so that's very real and crazy. So I feel like that that the weight of that has just kind of finally settled on me like I think this whole time I've been like yeah I know what it means to have a baby I've done it before it's gonna be great no problems yeah we'll do oh it'll be so much fun to have a little baby again that's like been my whole like thought process and then now like being so close I'm like oh Reality. I am gonna be a father to another human being again yeah from the, the beginning from zero to baby it's but like at least oh my it was God. only two years ago when you did it like for me it's been four and a half years <laughs> yeah. and i'm like oh i've definitely forgotten some hell that's gonna <laughs> arise at some point right, right. yeah you may remember yeah. all the hell still i'm curious well we just got so lucky because our daughter was so sweet like she and not not that he won't be sweet but i'm just saying like she was really easy like she slept really oh. well i think by six or seven months she was sleeping like only waking up once in the night you know maybe and then like by a year she was like sleeping all the way through the night easy and i know that's not the reality for a lot of parents and it might not be the reality for us again so like we're just sort of like okay like maybe we'll get lucky maybe our son will take to the the sleeping and all the sleep training that we did maybe he won't maybe he'll just want to do his own thing i don't know so we're just gonna see how it's gonna be but it's just really nice to like you know, know that work is winding down and like I have like this time now and then I go back to work for a couple of weeks and then I, you know, whenever he's born, I'm just off, you know? So like, it's kind of nice to know that like that is coming and it's, it's funny to like, in my mind, it's like not having to work. It like feels like it's going to be a vacation, but like clearly it's not going to be a vacation because I'm going to be raising a little it infant baby. It may be way worse. Yeah. Like than just having a job. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's going to be fun because I think no matter what happens, no matter how hard it is, like my family will be together with me and that's who I'll be able to spend my time with. And so no matter what, like it's going to be nice for that reason. Mm. But yeah, it is. It is like I think finally the gravity of the whole thing has finally dawned on me as of yesterday like oh yeah whoa heavy but yeah how about you how are things going on your end it's so bizarre to me because your timeline is a month ahead of me but because i'm so positive that i'm gonna be induced early it's like the same timeline (laughs) so i'm like yeah i have about another month left even though i'm a month behind beth right so i i'm having similar feelings of anticipation and excitement and fear uh, all at the same time. I'm trying to remember how many of these recordings I've missed because I've had like essentially two weeks off from the podcast because of all right, yeah, our daycare took a break and then I have some family stuff. So I'm like, I'm just like thinking about like the last, it's been a while since I've chatted with you. What's up with me? We have a name for our daughter. I'm not going to say the name, but I will say it's Ooh. named after my dad. So we're going to name her in part after my dad, who's who's not doing so well right now. And that's part of the reason why I've been a little bit away from the podcast. Other than that, in, in film news, we I think we last talked about how I left Slated after a really bad review of our oh did we not talk about this okay so i got the script analysis from slated for my Uh for my horror comedy best friends forever and it was a really really shitty score it was a 67 out of 100 and i mean and we read the review and we 
we didn't agree with a lot of what was said. And anyway, I did this whole recording with Amy, my co-writer for our Patreon campaign about how they're wrong. But then in the back of my mind, I'm like, oh, but what if they're right? You know, what if it's not a good script? Anyway, I left slated <laughs> because I got petty. That's, that's so funny. Oh, my God. <laughs> I left slated thinking, OK, well, this is my petty action. This is like the only power I have is to leave <laughs> these people who have insulted me. And then what has been amazing is just last night I got this horror producer read the script and he wrote wrote me and my team last night saying that he loves it. And it was just so nice to not feel like a failure <laughs> for like five wow. minutes. It was just like amazing. I was like, oh, well, maybe the other people just didn't get what we were trying to do. And maybe this yeah. person gets what we're trying to do. And Clearly. not to feel so like final about yeah. feedback, you know? You can't feel that way about it. Yeah. So Great. that's what's happening right now is like... I'm again for some reason external approval really means a lot to me and it, it reinstored restored my faith in this film a little bit more and we're gonna have a meeting with him and see if he wants to get involved so that's exciting I, I have to know how you met the horror producer like was this a cold email situation like a oh, connection it's someone like, I've been talking to for a while and I had pitched other projects and he wasn't interested in those projects. And I just didn't really think to pitch him this project. And then one day he emailed me and he's like, I'd love to look at your new project. Would you send it my way? Oh, cool. And I did. And I don't know if we're fit and I don't know if it's going to end up being anything, but it was just really nice <laughs> to like yeah. not be chasing someone and being the the desperate one, right? It was really nice to be like, oh, they asked to read it and they like it. Okay, yeah. there's hope here. So I'm feeling a little bit more hopeful about filmmaking at this moment. Yeah, that's so funny. I just really quickly, like when I was making the alternate, I, uh, you know, did the blacklist thing and, yeah. you know, paid for a review on the blacklist and I got a five. And I was like, is that, oh, I don't God. even know because that's probably pretty good. Like, I don't even know it's if that's a five, bad. It's the, sa it's the same as it's worse than yours. Cause yours is 67 out of hundred. Mine's the fi five out of 10. So like 50% basically. Right. Yeah. You know? And I was like, okay, like I'm going to take these notes and I'm going to make it so much better. And like, I'll take what I like and I'll throw away what I don't like. And I'm going to do it again. And so I paid for another one after I got to a place where I thought it was great. I got another five, but like for different reasons. <laughs> and so I was just like, you know what? Fuck you guys. Like, I don't care. I don't need your validation. You know, yeah. like this script is clearly not like in your wheelhouse or these readers don't dig it or whatever. Like, I don't care. Like I'm going to make the movie anyways. And I love the movie. And then I got audience members loving it. Got good reviews. And so fuck y'all like it's fine <laughs> you know it's but I didn't leave blacklist because I mean I, <laughs> you know I think I eventually stopped posting it on there because I was like I don't need to pay $25 a month anymore for this but like you know I don't have I don't have any ill will towards them it's just like okay whatever that wasn't for them but fuck it who cares I take things very personally <laughs> I, well, I felt very slated by slated slated is way more expensive too it's like a thousand yes. bucks or something versus like it, uh -oh. I think it was uh, I paid no. 300 but 300 is no oh. change 300 is well, a lot of money still that's good that's good that you didn't pay what they were used to be asking those bastards but yeah I think mine was like 150 or 100 bucks or yeah. something like that and so like 
you know, whatever. Like, I, I'm glad I did it. And I mean, maybe one day I'll write a script that, you know, the blacklist people deem worthy and I get an eight or a nine or even, God forbid, a seven. Oh, my God. I would die for a seven. <laughs> but yeah, I, I wouldn't take it to like, I'm glad that you're feeling the way that you are now because don't let that like define your project or you because, you, you know, people don't people don't understand scripts like i think that's like the main thing i've learned from like all our episodes of podcast is that no one knows anything no one, knows no one anything. can tell if a script is good or bad like they're all guessing <laughs> you know no one knows even anything. at the highest level they're all guessing so it's just like okay well you know like we'll see we'll see how it goes but uh yeah let's just go make a movie anyways and if you believe in it it's gonna be good as long as you put yourself in it you know so well, and if you believe in everything we're saying, you should give to our Patreon campaign, patreon.com slash MMIH podcast. That is how the show keeps on going. Also, don't forget to check out jambox.io, one of our amazing sponsors. They are royalty-free music and SFX company with an emphasis in high-quality cinematic cues. Their composers have worked on soundtracks for Hollywood-level films, working with directors like Michael Bay, Martin Scorsese, or global brands like DJI. One of these days, I would love to break down this copy because the phrasing of it is so interesting to me. Working with directors like Michael Bay, Martin Scorsese, are they just like directors that are similar to Martin Scorsese and Michael (laughs) Bay? Or are they actually those directors? I I like to think it's actually those directors. I think it's those directors. That's how I interpreted it at first. But now the more I read it, the more I'm like, what are they trying to say? Jam box. Jam box. (laughs) (laughs) But they are very cool. They offer customized plans to fit your needs, which is pretty amazing. And without any more delay, here's our chat with the illustrious Mia Bruno. Mia Bruno, can you tell us your one to 1,000 minute bio, however amount of time you want to take? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I could. Also, such a fan of yours. I feel like we we learned from each other. I guess I'll give a little bit of a longer one just so it establishes me as, as knowing what I'm talking about. So I'm a person who does distribution and marketing in many different forms. I started working at Gravitas Ventures in 2011. So sort of the boom of digital distribution. Back then, it was a very small company and I was hired to sort of do everything as, as all of us, the seven of us at the time were. So I was doing sales, I was doing marketing, I was doing acquisitions, I was doing deliverables. And it was very helpful to see the sort of evolution of the digital distribution world and all of the players therein. And as time went on, this is sort of the glossed over narrative, I started hearing from filmmakers more and more, yes, we'd love to have the big Netflix deal, but we didn't just make this film to sit on a digital platform. We, we want it to change policy. We want it to reach certain audiences. We want people to really love our film and and see it in a way that feels the most accessible to them. So how to do that and also preserve traditional distribution. So again, gloss over narrative, but in time I started my own company trying to do exactly that. Sort of the idea being that distribution can and should be a creative process and that it should be an extension of the film and the innovation that took to make the film to then 
move into the distribution phase. And that's the reason I called my company Fourth Act. The distribution and marketing should be the fourth act of your film. So I do a lot of different things. I do theatrical booking. I do sales to platforms. I do grassroots marketing and impact campaigns. But really, what I like to think of is every film is different and every film needs something different. So it starts with a conversation with a filmmaker or sometimes a distributor and just sort of think about like very much from... I imagine how one thinks as a producer, like what does this film need to reach the goals that it has and to reach the audiences that it wants to reach. So that in a nutshell is what I do. And basically how how did you end up finding your first clients and starting your company? Like what was that process like leaving Gravitas and doing, doing your own thing? Did you just bring people with you? Like how did that happen? There's, there's some characters that work in distribution And I was living in Los Angeles and I just found the driving very tiring. And I think working in this industry, there was a lot of pressure of that I felt of like, you have to be this, you have to be that, you have to be meaner, you have to have a thicker skin, you have to like ABC, always be closing. And I just, my experience of working for companies was not always a positive one, I will say. And I always loved the work. I always loved working with filmmakers. I always found the work so rewarding. Both of my parents are artists. I grew up with artists as a family and I knew I never wanted to be an artist, but I always felt that cohesion. I always, the people in my life are all artists and I felt like I have a personality that fits very well with that and sort of aligns sort of a left brain structure to a right brain innovation. So I wanted to keep doing this. I met my now husband who was living in Portland, Oregon. And so we started dating from afar and he was like, why don't you come to Portland? And I was like, that seems crazy, but I don't know if there is a place for me in this industry to stay in Los Angeles. So I might as well. So I moved to Portland And yeah, at that point, I just thought like, that's the end of my film career and I'll figure out something to do out here. And I feel every day so lucky that that filmmakers followed me and said, you know, are you available? I don't exactly know what I need, but I know I need help and I really liked working with you. So do you think there's something that we could do together? So I am eternally grateful to every filmmaker that has said that, has continued to say that. It's been eight years that I've done this and... Yeah, every year still feels like a miracle. But yeah, it it feels a little more steady now. I have like 45 things to say about that. I'm trying to figure out which one. (laughs) Let's let's go about why distribution, because for me getting into distribution as a jobby job, I like to call them jobby jobs. It was almost like an arranged marriage where like I fell into a job working with Peter Broderick. I didn't know what distribution was. I didn't know why he hired me. And then bit by bit, I was like, wait, this is really I grew to love distribution. And I would say a lot of people hate distribution. They get confused by it, the predatory language, the coldness of the interactions between partners in this industry. What, why are you still in distribution? Like what attracted you to it? Yeah, I sometimes think that distribution is like the plumbing of the filmmaking industry. It's like a very necessary thing that nobody wants to do. But I completely agree with you. I love it. And I I knew it wasn't like I planned to be in distribution. I had worked in production companies and I, I had had one set job where they made me drive a 15 passenger van and I snapped oh. the side view mirror off on, on day oh. one. And I was like, oh. I can't do this. I hate this. And I also, I did, I did study film in college, but like the actual filmmaking, I was like, oh, I hate this. Like, 
I don't, I don't <laughs> like collaborating like this. Like, like nothing in my head. Like I love film, but I was like, like nothing I'm making looks like how it looks in my head. I, I just don't like it. And so I moved to Los Angeles and I just saw this job posting at Gravitas. And I met the extraordinary Melanie Miller, who if you haven't had her on your show, you absolutely Not should. Yet. We should, we should. I, I feel like, like if my life was a book, Melanie would be just such an important character and she still is. So I had an interview with Mel. Uh, the job was for working with her. She she's from the same part of New Jersey that I am as a strange coincidence. And I was like, yeah, I feel like I could do this job. And back then I was like, just like a young, like kind of like dumb person. And I credit, I was actually just talking about this. Like I credit Mel so much with just making me a professional adult and just the time and the patience that she had of not just making me good at the job, but making me great at the job, I think. And also just like, like teaching me to love it. And I think there were so many components of it that I was interested in. Like I loved cinema. That was a, a part of it, but like, there's something really psychological about it. There's, I often use this analogy that like, it feels like being a doula of sorts. Like you're, you're working with a film team to bring something out into the world. And I think there's such a psychological component. It's about trust. I think, like, as you said before, like a lot of filmmakers do not trust the process, do not trust who they're working with. And I found that so valuable to, to build that trust. And it, you know, I think that was a component, another component of why I didn't want to work for a distributor. I didn't want to be in a position to hold the rights of a film. I wanted to work alongside of a filmmaker. And yeah, and I think it's just like, especially when you're working on films where you see, I know this is what probably everyone says, but you see people love it. Like you get to be in the room and watch people watch the film and be like, wow, like I didn't, I didn't know this. So yeah, I love it. It, it always feels like, like the outlet for my creativity and as annoying as any project has ever been, like the work itself is, is so meaningful to me. And I will uh, add an addendum to this story. I worked on the documentary Navalny this year, produced by Melanie Miller. I got to be there when she won her Oscar. So just another, <laughs> just another fan plug wow. for Mel. That's amazing. So I, I want to hear about like what a filmmaker should expect when they engage with you as a distribution consultant. Like what, what are you going to bring to the table? What is your process? And like, what should they be looking, how should they be looking to partner with you on their film? I think it's a really good question. I like to start in sort of like, like a therapeutic way, just like, like, why are we here to, today? What are some thoughts that you have? And also just like, where, where are you in the process? I talk to a lot of filmmakers who are like, I don't know what I need. And that's sort of the evolution that we talked about together. You know, a lot of films, particularly this year in a very soft marketplace, have had the experience where they play a lot of festivals, they have sales agents, and then there just haven't been buyers. So usually a starting off point is like, well, you know, do you want to keep waiting? Do you want to, you know, do you have the funds to actually do this yourself? And then also something I think is a really core question is how do you want to be involved? Some filmmakers are like, I don't want to do this. I don't like, I just don't, I'm tired. I don't have more energy to pour into this. I want someone else to do that. And that's totally fine. And others are like, actually, I'm really energized about this. Like, I'm excited to know how to do this. Like, I felt disempowered by working with distributors in the past where they felt like they didn't get my film. 
And I'm really excited to be a part of this process. So from there, we start to tailor like, what does this work look like? And obviously budget is a component. You know, sometimes it's, I don't, you know, I don't have a huge budget. What could I do? Could I just do a couple of theatrical screenings? Do I need a theatrical? Or it's like, I'm in conversation with this distributor. How do I section out the rights that I need to be able to do some educational screenings or some high profile events? And again, it's just sort of seeing what what fits for this film and for this filmmaking team. Controversial question for you. By the way, this is so fun because I'm just like so familiar with all of them. I know, I love it too. I haven't <laughs> done one of these in a while, but it's really fun. I think there's a dark, dark side to some filmmakers in the sense of by the time they get to us, they're exhausted. Yes, and I agree that that's earned. They're exhausted because they've done a lot. But there's also this level of sometimes some filmmaker entitlement or delusions of grandeur. I call it filmmaker delusion. Like you need a level of of confidence, however, whether it's false or true confidence in order to convince yourself to make the movie in the first place. But then sometimes that doesn't match up with the marketplace. And so I'm curious, like, how do you have that conversation with filmmakers? Because I, I made a filmmaker cry. That's the only reason why I asked. You this. did? I did. And I still feel horrible about it. <laughs> and I didn't oh, need man, to. Oh, man, I want to hear that story. I do, too. <laughs> I... Well, yeah, I I guess not beating up on the person you may cry. I think you just have to be realistic from the beginning. And I think like, like part of what makes this hard is that there aren't clear examples of what success is. Like we all look to the A24s and the neons or films that came out in 2012. Like we don't see a lot of case studies and we don't know what, you know, what is to be expected. I was a very big fan of a project that Liz championed, managed, brought to light of day, the Sundance Creative Distribution Fellowship. I thought that was enormously helpful to see. We've had this conversation before, but, you know, that was a grant that went from six figures to five figures. And that obviously changed results. And I think, you know, it's something I think about a lot because, because I, th- I mean, I think that that's the core. It's like, how can you know what to expect if you have no idea what is going to happen going in? We started this conversation talking about the birthing process and how you don't feel as nervous now because you know what happens. And I think like we've created a structure of this industry, which is very precarious in and of itself in that like, you have to go to someone and largely to pay someone to give that to give you an idea of what your film can do. And like working in acquisitions, like it is more of a scientific process than you think. Like, yes, there are beautiful gems that like catch on and everybody loves, but like I can't think of a single example where there hasn't been a significant budget to make people aware of that. Like these things aren't coming out of left field. It's like, yes, it is the festivals where they play, yes, it is the people involved. Like, especially now, like working on a, on the film that won the Oscar, like that, yes, like there is luck, but there is a tremendous amount of money, influence, power. Like these are not, these are not lightning in a bottle type of things. Like it is a, it is a process. And I also think a benefit of working at Gravitas and just seeing, you know, they're putting out so many films and just seeing the numbers, like you see like, okay, here's a film that had no marketing that just did well because the subject matter is something people are interested in. Sex, aliens, horror movies, like food. Yes. These are things people tend to gravitate towards. Whereas like a drama that has no cast, like it's very, very hard without a lot of money behind it to elevate the prestige to get to be seen. So I think what a first step would be is just like more visibility, more transparency. Like, I think also there's the shame that comes with distribution of filmmakers feeling like, well, I fail. Like, 
I didn't make $100,000 in my theatrical. And so that was a failing on my part. And I think like it causes filmmakers not to talk to each other and to share details like that because it feels like, oh, I didn't get the deal with Neon and I didn't make a lot of money. So that must have me- meant that either I failed or somebody working at my film failed. And that's just not the case. Like, I think, I think the, I won't say a benefit, like we're in a hard place. Absolutely. But like what I hope it creates is just like a re- more of a clarity and a transparency about what is to be expected. You know, I think like, like I think about companies that do, you know, that do theatrical bookings and and do these releases. It's like, like what, if you hand a company $150,000 to an act release, like what is the expectation that you get back? Is it to make that money back? Is it to position the film so that you'll get a platform deal with a Netflix or a Hulu? Is it that as many people see it as possible? Like we just, we just have these very nebulous goals. And it seems so strange to me that when there are so many resources of how to make a film and how to fund a film and, you know, so many mentorship opportunities, like there just isn't that for distribution. It's like the same voices largely saying the same things. And especially now what I find very frustrating is these like, oh, it's such a soft marketplace. Like this is bad, but like some filmmakers will figure it out and they'll be fine. And like, like I wonder with those conversations, like where are the funding organizations that think like, okay, we have to fund films from beginning to end. Like if there aren't distribution opportunities, if the platforms aren't buying, if we are looking to the creatives to be able to figure this out, where is the funding for that? Why is distribution not as funded as production? Like, you know, I, I use this analogy yesterday, actually, it's like, we've built, you know, we have all the funding to build the body of a car and to put beautiful leather interior and to paint it a vibrant color. But it's like, you need to fund the engine. <laughs> Otherwise, it's just going to sit there. I was about so, to say gas. Yeah. I mean, there is you need gas, you need gas and an engine, both things. So I do think that there are, you know, there's no silver bullet solution. Like it's hard. It's hard to reach people. People don't, you know, the thought of like, oh, we'll just play a film in New York and LA and everyone will show up. We know so many people in New York and LA. Like, yeah, it's just, it's not if people, what is the the, the baseball movie with Kevin Costner? If you build it, they'll build the dreams. Build the dreams, isn't (laughs) it? They'll build it. Yeah, no, that's not how this works. It's, you know, you have to do a lot of work to get people to show up because like, Yes, there are the dedicated people who are showing up in the theater, but like they're not that easy to reach. Like we've gone now through a period of time where people are are accustomed to staying home. And it's, you know, even people that really care about a film, they may prefer to see it at home. They may prefer to see it like with a, a venue that they're already going to. So like the the notion of this film is in a theater, so that means that it will have an audience. Like it takes it takes work. So going back to like the expectations, like what what should filmmakers be expect expecting? Like if they have a movie that say here's just really vague, rough things. So under two hundred thousand dollar budget, no stars. You know, let, in this example, let's just say a genre movie. Like mm-hmm. like what 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 should their you know what should they be expecting to get out of their release? Like is because I think a lot of people just think, oh, my movie's good enough. Like it's gonna get that Netflix deal. Deal. It's gonna get an Amazon placement. It's gonna get you know, on HBO Max or Max or whatever. Like, but what what should be the way that we're thinking about success for a movie of that size? 
again, I, I wouldn't, I won't answer this question with a question, but yes, I would start by saying like, what are the specific things other than money? What are the specific things? Like, do you want to have it seen in front of an audience? Do you want to, and also like, what's, what's the budget and involvement that you want to spend in this? So like with a, a low budget genre movie, let's say like I would, in this hypothetical example, I would say, unless it had significant festival presence and good reviews, it's probably going to be difficult to book it in a theater. But maybe instead of a, th- a traditional theatrical run, what you could do would be like some midnight screenings, like do them in places where you already have community or where you think you can build community. There's a wonderful example, Liz, I think you worked with this team, the vampire. The bite one. me, Naomi. Bite me. Yeah. The, the touring, go back to the, the Simon Lang uh, example of touring your film. Like those are things that work. I think also... Um, I know I'm extrapolating from this question. A film in in our genre example, a film I often thought about, which was a very influential film to me in the beginning of my distribution career, was a Lionsgate film called Repo the Genetic Opera. Yes. Oh, we had <laughs> him. We had him on the show. Yeah, Ooh. we did. We had that director. Yeah. Darren, Darren Bowsman. Lynn Bowsman. Yeah. We should have Terrence Sedunich next. Okay. <laughs> But he Let's has do done it. this. He has done this model throughout his career. But yes, it was like this very strange culty film, beloved by so many. And they just did tours with it, and they went around, and you know, people. It's like Rocky Horror. People get up and sing. I know it's a controversial statement, Repo versus Rocky, but yeah, they really invested <laughs> the time in it. There's and I no would say, contest, Mia. I'm sorry. I know. I know. It's there. <laughs> Yeah. Like I would say to this hypothetical filmmaker, like, is that something that you're willing to do? Like what are innovative ways that you can make this release feel fitting for this film and also like not invest tons of money? I think that's another thing that also is a fallacy that filmmakers feel like, well, I have to buy a billboard. I have to, you know, hire the fancy PR company for five months out. Like, I think also, you know, in terms of coded language, like sometimes I feel like, like, like talking to PR companies, they will be transparent and just say like, I cannot, there's not five months of press to be had for this film. So I think it's about utilizing resources wisely and then thinking like, okay, a financial goal is, is almost always a component of it. So it's like, how do we intelligently pursue that? And with that, you know, it is truly just pitching platforms. And and that is a harder thing for filmmakers to do. But that is something that Liz and I do. So so yes, the sales process, I hate to say, still still a bit of out of reach for filmmakers. But in terms of demonstrating audience and, and doing really impactful and cool events, I would say like, what are ways to do that in a cost-effective way that, that are going to, to make sense for this film and for the budget that you have? Let's talk a little bit about money. And I know that it's an awkward conversation. I always come at it with my clients with a very pessimistic point of view. Mm-hmm. I always say like, you may not make the money back that you spent to hire me. And mm-hmm, think about mm-hmm. that, right? Think about your goals. But are you seeing, are you seeing what I'm seeing? That it's, I know you keep saying soft market, but such an, a lovely way of putting it. Like, I is it dismal out there? Are for we you? in the nadir? <laughs> yes. I don't, I mean, I feel like you and I like text about this because <laughs> yeah, we're just like, or is it still a free fall? I, I don't know. I, I can't speak to that. Like, but yes, like, I don't want to, I don't want to like, be the one on this, sh- on your show who says like, like, does anybody make their money back? That's all we talk about, by the way. And I am that chicken little. <laughs> so you don't have to okay. play that role. I'll be. I'll be okay. That okay. That's good. Yeah, I wonder that all the time. I remember when I was at Gravitas, my boss was like, how do you think these filmmakers make money? And I was like, what? And I was like, oh my God, they're not making it from this. 
But I do remember, like I mentioned, my parents wrote books and they were, they were very healthy eaters. We were, it was a healthy eating household. But every time my parents got a check, I was allowed to have a donut. So I came to associate donuts with money. And, <laughs> and I wonder that like, like eventually, like my mom had to get a real job, a jobby job. <laughs> but I do wonder with these filmmakers, like, and, and yeah, it's like, are you making money? Like, are you like, do you have money yourself? Like, I truly don't know. And I do like, I don't, I think that it is something that does feel convoluted of like this notion of like, oh, you make a film to make money or that there is money to be made. Like sometimes, yes, but like, it is not a given at all. And I, and I think you're absolutely like, I do try and think about that of like, I think it depends, you know, obviously there's, there are films that get made that should get made that, you know, have funders that aren't expecting to be paid back. I don't, I don't want to completely think of this as a philanthropic art, but I do, I mean, especially on the documentary side, like I do think a lot of these films are funded by private donors and grants. And, you know, I, I think there's more of an awareness that there is not necessarily money to be made back. Like, I think if you make a film about a really important, but not necessarily entertaining topic, like it's just, it is a heavy lift to get, to get people to turn out. And that's not to say like, there's no money to be made, but yeah, it's, can be hard. Yeah. I mean, just a, a quick aside, like it feels like the people who are making money in as filmmakers are ones who make enough movies. Like I'm talking about like over 10 or more. And then they had, they get revenue from those over time. Or if they somehow are able to get a situation where they're getting hired to direct movies, which oftentimes goes in tandem. Like we have a lot of guests who like, will make 10, 12 movies, be making revenue on there. And then they also get hired to direct or write a movie, you know? So it feels like that is like the way to go. But like, we just had someone um, on the show who we haven't released the episode yet, but they were like, you know, big, you know, name production company, big release at, at South by Southwest. And, you know, like they got paid on their first movie, but it's like looking out to their future. They're like, I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> Like, am I going to get hired for another job? Like, I'm on the top of the world. Yeah. Best thing that could ever happen to me with my project. And I have no idea what my future is like. And that's just, that's just what it is. So I feel like having a day job or some jobby job, as Liz likes to say, is crucial for filmmakers, you know, at, at least until you get to like this 1% situation, which like so very few of us will ever get to, you know? Yeah. I mean, it seems like the filmmakers... I know like they teach or they get hired to like direct TV yeah, or commercials. I, I yeah. mean, I feel like financially the, those are the, the ways that you make a living doing this, but maybe yeah. I should teach. Yeah. I, I think that's you. <laughs> what just to follow up to that, because I do, I don't, <laughs> I don't want to give people a reason not to hire us. I want to acknowledge that there actually is yeah. value in this work. No, there absolutely is. Right. So like, <laughs> What I what I what I think of it is I like the doula metaphor you use. I like the teacher analogy. I think a lot of people are confused by distribution and so it's I I think of it as hand holding. Are you and I know you also oversee impact campaigns, you do theatrical booking. Like there's there's a transactional element to some of those things. When if if a filmmaker were to say to you like I'm not going to make any money. Why should I hire you? Like, do you even entertain an answer there? I mean, if somebody says that to me, I'm like, that's fine. <laughs> you have a bad <laughs> like, attitude. I don't really well, want to work with you. Right, exactly. Like, sorry, sometimes filmmakers do not always have the best attitude. And I have learned over the, these years, like if I'm in a position to be like, you should listen to my advice. I just don't want to, I'm not interested in that. Like, 
And I think filmmakers hire us for a variety of reasons. Like it is, you know, again, are you are you not going to have this child that <laughs> that now exists? Are you not going to raise it and put it out in the world? Like I think a lot of filmmakers, I think there is a desire to not be as tied to this marketplace. Like like there can be options out there. I think there is a growing awareness that like the options are not always that great. Like yes, there are amazing distribution deals. There are distributors that do such tremendous work, and there are also incredible people that work within distribution who truly love the projects that they work on and really know the subjects or come to know the subjects of what they're doing. And that makes all the difference. I think like for the the process of distribution to work with a person where you feel some connection, where you feel like some element of trust or that that person is doing their absolute all, even if they are not making you tons of money, I think that's valuable. And I think that's meaningful. Because people can love your your movie, even if they're not in a position to like make trillions of dollars for you. So I think that there is value of of a person who's like the same way with a producer. Like there, you need somebody or you may not need somebody, but if you don't have this knowledge yourself, it can be helpful to have somebody to help guide the way of like, let's just find that audience. I mean, I feel like when I talk to filmmakers and ask, what is your goal? The goal I hear by far the most is like, I wanted to reach the widest audience possible. And I think that there is meaning to doing that. It's like, you've made this project. You might as well see it through to the end. Can you talk a little bit about like your, the difference between you and the work you do and like a sales agent? Like, is it very similar? Is it completely different? And like, cause you talked about, you know, approaching streamers and pitching these people, but is that something that, that you do as a distribu- distribution consultant? Or is it something that you like connect a filmmaker to a sales agent and then they start doing those things? I'll do both. I, I feel like... I came to do sales because I had those relationships. Like when I started forming my company, I was not like, okay, this is what it's going to look like. It largely was formed by like, what are people asking for help with? So usually I do sales only if it's a component of something else. So if it's like, I really want help with an impact campaign and putting that together and also sale, like, could you like pitch me to Netflix? So I usually do it as a component of something Something that I felt ethically very strongly about when starting this work is I just didn't, I didn't want to be a distributor. I didn't want to make decisions on behalf of filmmakers. And I feel, I felt like that was where so many relationships went awry, where it's just like, at the end of the day, a distributor has a mandate of how they do things. Like they have a set number of employees. They have a set number of hours. Like this is not, this is not their art. This is not, I think a lot of people feel passionate about it, but it's like, there, there also has to be boundaries and an ability to say no. And I think that's a different I mean, there should still be boundaries and ability to say no on a consultant side. But I think it's a different situation to be like, I'm working with you and not I own your project. And at the end of the day, every decision is mine to make. I think it is just a different... I didn't want to be in that position. I'm not knocking it, but I think I'd rather empower people to to know this process and to make their own decisions. So with sales, the way I do it is like, sometimes sales can be very low. You know, they can be under $10,000, let's say. And I think it's also helpful, you know, something that I try to do is like, is be able to illustrate to filmmakers, like this isn't an aberration. This isn't like, it's not me doing a poor job. Like this is, these are the offers that you're getting. This is the market value of your film within this window. And also speaking, I mean, this is a larger conversation, but speaking to all of the windows, like there are different, there are different places that films have more traction than others. Like I was talking to a friend who's an educational distributor 
theater recently. And I had worked on a film that did a theatrical and a theatrical that, I mean, maybe under a thousand dollars for 10 cities. It was, it was very, it did not have a theatrical audience and they had really wanted to do it. And I had said, I'm, I'm not sure this is, this film is going to sing in the way that you hope it does, but we can try. And so, and then my friend who does educational distribution had taken the film and he's like, this is one of our top performers. This movie makes money hand over fist. So I think sometimes it's like thinking about like, where is a film going to have the most traction? And I guess an upbeat thing to think about is like, again, I think we looked at success of like, did you get the Netflix deal? Did you get the participant deal? Did you get the neon deal? And sometimes it's like, well, okay, this is a film that is of a more academic nature. And, you know, it didn't really perform well in theaters, but it is in an educational capacity. Before I started doing sales, I didn't know that it was just an email exchange. Yeah, like I thought it was this mystical <laughs> Me <process>. too, me <laughs> too. <laughs> Deals at midnight, Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> People <laughs> like upending tables and like poker chips flying against the wall. Nah, it's like an email. And the same thing for booking, theatrical booking. Yeah, and yeah. Would you be able to, I, I mean, I'm not asking you to break down your entire process, but could you help demystify some of these terms that we're talking about? Like, pitching to a platform like how many emails does that consist of and like what do you send when you pitch to a platform and how do they respond yeah (laughs) it's a lot of following up yeah i think that's such a great question yeah no it's not there's not like a magic to this it's just a bunch of emails yeah i you know you send this is the film it played these festivals here's the synopsis here's who is involved here's who's committed to help here are the groups and organizations that want to support here is the as as concrete as possible an example of of why this makes sense for you to purchase it for your platform so yes for booking theaters and for pitching platforms it's just an email this is a very relationship driven business so it does help if you actually know the people that you are pitching to and have some sort of relationship you want to be able to demonstrate to them that like you're that you have some things of value to them so it it is a relationship that is you know you want to maintain it's a question I get from filmmakers all the time because, you know, I, and I get it. Like there is like, I I have to be sure I'm doing right by my film. And like, how can I, I know I want to trust you, but I like late at night worry that you like, you're not prioritizing my project. And I always tell them like, I don't think it will help if you send along an email, even if you found their email somehow, like it, they don't, I hate to say it. They really don't want to deal with filmmakers directly. And the reason for that is not that they don't love cinema or they're bad. Maybe they are bad. I can't speak to all that, (laughs) but they don't want to deal with filmmakers because their process is we want to make deals emotionlessly. Like we're going to tell you things that you don't want to hear. And we don't want to say it to your face. Like we want to say it to your representative. We want to have an emotionless negotiation about what the film is worth. And then we want to be sure that, that the film can be delivered. That's another big thing. Like we don't, like if we sign a deal and we're paying money for this film, it has to be delivered on a timeline. And yeah, we don't, we don't want to mess around and have back and forth about that. So like, I think that is part of like, there are, there are a lot of emotions that run through any business. And I think as it comes to pitching and sales, like the people that make these decisions don't want to be in an emotional turmoil. And they also don't want to be yelled at. Like if they want to be able to pass on a film and like not have like a furious email in response. Um, (laughs) So, 
sometimes it does find someone that you trust to do the sales but like filmmakers i'm so sorry to say it i don't always think it helps for you to add a second note to what a salesperson is doing yeah i feel like that was something on my movie i was completely kept away from and i mean i i, I was like yeah okay whatever <laughs> you know but i obviously didn't really i don't i didn't understand at the time like what the process was that it was just an email or if it was a phone call or whatever and i mean maybe sometimes it's, it's a meeting sometimes that yeah. happens a zoom <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Do they meet? Is it, is it like they'll zoom when it's a movie that they're more interested in, like with a name town or something, or is it just completely random? I don't think I've ever, that's not true. I did work on one film that was like several zooms, but for the most part, and I was only like advising on the sales. I wasn't doing the sales, but yes, I've, I've worked on one film where there was a number of zooms, but for the most part, it's an email exchange, sometimes a phone call, but mostly an email exchange. So here's a question that you guys you're not going to want to answer and I'm going to ask it anyways, but like, you know, for, for indie filmmakers, like we are, we keep on talking about like, yeah, the Netflix deal, they, the max deal, like, you know, whatever, but like, what are some of like the better like distribution deals or scenarios for your movie that you should be very excited about if you end up at that level that, you know, people may not have heard of, you know, like what are some of these companies that like are sought after and like good for like, low budget, you know, indie films? Also a very good question. I mean, I think that's, that's in the eye of the beholder. I'm not, I'm not going to skirt your question. I will, I'll be more specific. <laughs> I think that, I think that a distributor is, you know, it is a personal opinion of, you know, what is going to be the best fit for me. Like, do I think that there are some distributors are better than others? Like, like, yes, but it's largely like what deal is better than the other. Like, like, yes, there are some that seem to be like illegitimate, but largely they go out of business for the most part. Like these are all legitimate businesses that are doing legitimate business. And it's just like, did you get a deal that came attached with some money and some effort? Like, are you getting weekly marketing calls? Are you getting people paying attention and making effort on your behalf? And largely that is if there is money attached that a distributor has to work to recoup, or are you getting a revenue share deal in which you're one, you know, of several that are going out at the same time. And I think like, it's not, is there, what are the good ones? What are the bad ones? It's understanding where you fall within any distribution deal that you have and understanding what a distributor is going to do for you and understanding what they're not going to do for you. Like when I worked at Gravitas, I worked at, eventually I came to work as the director of acquisitions. And so it was my job to close deals and, ABC, always be closing. And something that I found like sort of dispiriting in that work was that like, like that was the job. It was, you know, once it's closed, you're on to the next one, you're on to the next one. And so like, it sort of felt to me, not dishonest, but just like deceptive to be like, oh my God, I loved your film so much. Like it was so personal. It was so meaningful. And then I would never, you know, then I pass it along to another person. So I think that ways that filmmakers can sort of prepare for that is just like asking those questions from the beginning. Like, like a big indicator, again, is if a distributor is paying money or not. Like that is a big, like, no matter what they say of like, yeah, it's a rev share deal, a revenue share deal. But, you know, we're going to put in a lot of effort. We're going to be doing in-house marketing and we're going to be talking up with the platforms. Like chances are, if it is a distributor that is paying money for other films, they are going to be prioritizing those films. So again, it's not to say like, is this a good deal or a bad deal? It is, is that going to fit with what you want? And if it doesn't, then I would say something to think about is the notion of going with an aggregator. Liz and I have had a conversation about this. There are fewer aggregators out there than there used to be. Liz, do you, like, do you know of who's aggregating these things? Well, I mean, other than like, because 
I think of aggregator as like strictly like film hub. Well, actually, there are no aggregators because everyone's taking a percentage. That's oh really? I think even film hubs taking a percentage, but like aggregators. Oh God, we're going to get into this. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Traditionally is like you just pay the upfront fee and they pitch the platforms and they don't take a distribution fee and they don't do a marketing expense. But if you're talking about the other usage of the term aggregator, just like a straight digital distributor, it's like it's gravitas, your favorite. Mm-hmm. It's freestyle. It's ten ninety one. I'm I'm I am aware that they are doing a distributor report card on FilmRise right now. Oh, so okay. we're just at the beginning of that investigation process. What about this film film collaborative doesn't deliver? They don't do any repping outside of festival distribution, mm, okay. and they no longer have a straight digital distribution deal. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, interesting. yeah that is tricky because like the the aspect of getting up on digital platforms like it's harder than one thinks itunes for example only will accept deliverables from approved labs so you can't just go to any like if somebody's like oh i can get your film on itunes like chances are they are going through other middle people to get there with um, fees with percentages with fees, with fees yeah. yes so every every person who says they can get you up on itunes like ask how will you do it who will you work with what lab are you working with because every every middle person is taking a percentage so that does make it a little harder in terms of doing that i wish there was still an aggregator out there for these self-distribution releases yeah <sighs> Yeah, that's it. Did they all go away? Like, wasn't there a couple? Like, so they just started. They just started taking. Yeah, they just started taking percentages. Either went bankrupt or started taking percentages. Yeah. (laughs) So it's hard. I wish. I wish there was. It's like every few years, there's one of these companies, and they always go bankrupt. Or it's like this is like the magic solution to getting your film on platform. But I also think like something to think about is like the value of transactional numbers. Like it's been at this point almost a decade of digital distribution oh over a decade i guess of digital distribution and it's like well of course you have to be up on itunes you have to you know i think about the the last creative distribution thing we did which well i guess that would have been 2018 but like transactional numbers have gone down and so if you're paying (laughs) yeah sorry that's you know, okay. if you're paying a couple thousand, from my, from my yeah, reports. yeah. <laughs> so if you're paying a couple thousand dollars to deliver your film to a platform and you're getting a couple hundred back, like, does that make sense? So again, I think it's all a very strategic thought process of where, where does it make sense to spend money? And for these distributors that are all rights distributors that are taking films for revenue share models, like, I just think if you have any energy and a little bit of budget, I think there's often a better way. Unless you're just like, I'm totally done with this film. I just want it out. Like, I don't care. Like, someone take it. Then that's fine. But if you are hoping for some effort, some innovation around how it comes out, I think you're better to either do it yourself or find someone who can help advise you through the process of like, what what are some ways to cobble together a better situation? Instead of going to a place like Indie Rights or Film Hub or something, or instead of taking a deal with like a, a distributor who's going to just... Instead you know, of going with a catalog distributor who's not going yeah. to yeah. get any time yeah. attention okay. to your phone. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, this indie is rights? the second. <laughs> I like indie rights. But... Indie... Okay. Okay. <laughs> I trust the... you. I trust you. <laughs> but this is the second conversation I've had where the results of the conversation today 
like in the past few hours, where the result of the conversation was really consider giving self-distribution some credit and a try. Maybe we just need to have a better name for it. It sounds I think, like, onerous. And, well, it just, yeah, it sounds like, yeah, you have to like do this insurmountable thing. But also it's like, you made the film. That's yeah. that's harder. Like, yeah. it's, how do it's you funny. do that? I think old school producers really hate it, you know, because like my producer, I, he wouldn't even hear me. Like I was like, what about, you know, self-distribution or whatever? And he's like, no. Like you're going to look not as like professional if you self distribute rather than Mm -hmm. having, you know, some sort of distributor take your movie and like get it out onto the platforms. And even if you don't make money, you're going to look better and it's going to be better for you as a filmmaker and for the movie to do it that way, which I'm like, maybe it is, but like, maybe it doesn't matter because I can still do all the other things. I can still get on Rotten Tomatoes. I can still hire a PR firm. I can still do everything that you like about our release, but I just, then I keep all the money or most of the money, you know? So I just feel like, I don't know. Like I, I, I'm starting to think like if you're making a movie that doesn't have stars and is like of a low, low budget, like maybe it's just better to do it yourself because the I mean, chances of getting the money back are just better. You know, I always, or I often think, I don't think this is always the case, but I often think that when filmmakers take all rights deals with the strip, with catalog distributors, that like it is, this is also an analogy I use a lot. I'm sorry. Then if people listen to me speak a lot, I say the same thing, but that it's the, the story of the chicken making the bread and asking all the other farm animals to help that it's like, you know, you, you have this distributor that's, and you're like, who will help me think about my audience? Who will help me build partnerships? Who will help me design my poster and trailer and ostensibly pay for it? And all the animals are quiet until it's time to eat. So like at the end of the day, like I think that a, a, the scenario of going with an all rights rev share catalog distributor and self-distribution is not that different in terms of the work. And wouldn't you rather be in a position where you get to control things and where you haven't signed a deal for 15 to 30 years and somebody is taking a significant percentage of the work of the results that you have generated on your own? I think that's a perfect ending point. We have just a few quick questions that we ask everyone. And there, okay. I'm going to skip to number two, which is, and I, I'm going to adjust it because you were instrumental in giving me the best career advice I've ever received. So just in terms of like believing in myself and trusting. Always that ask I, for more money. <laughs> ask for more money. <laughs> I'd be curious, what is the best filmmaking industry advice you've ever received or dispensed? I think it is actually not related to distribution. I think it is don't work for people that tear at the core of your soul. Like it's just life is too short. Like I do think it's changing in this industry, but there are so many people who are rewarded for being cruel. And it's just like, it's just not worth it to be in a position where like sometimes people just don't like you and there's nothing you can do to change that. And there's no way that you can work hard, like no success will erase that. And just I think, I think it's actually a combination. Here's another person you should have on the show is Helen Wang, who used to be the head of acquisitions at Showtime. And she has this wonderful program like called Better Angels. Better Angels. Yes. yes. Okay. She has yes. this wonderful program called Enrich, which is a financial literacy program for women. And it, it is largely for women in film. But she said this, she, she was like, always have enough save that you could quit. Because I think sometimes the best thing you can do is to quit and just start again. If you are in a position where you don't feel like you're respected, don't put in the effort, find something else, like believe in your, I know it's so trite, but like you can be really good at a job and just in a position where it's like, this is, 
is not working. And I, you know, I'd like to find something where it's a better fit. So yes, I guess always save enough to be able to quit. The fuck you money, right? Yeah. yeah. I love that. What's some of the worst filmmaking advice you've ever heard in your career? I like that, that Facebook group that's like the predatory distribution one. Some of the worst filmmaking advice. Oof. I mean, so much just like, like on the distribution side, just, yeah, it's, it's somewhat shocking of like what people do and don't know or think, yeah, always read contracts before you sign them. Yeah, anybody that wants to take your film forever, you know, not forever, but for like 35 years, like just don't do it. There, there was a, I was talking to a film that had a sales agent that was just like, wanted like 50% for like 10 years just to do sales. Like if it sounds really bad, don't do it. Like always oh, talk to people before you do things. Like, this is not a vacuum. Like, these are the same players doing the same things. Like, there's a bunch of options. Just like, don't feel like you're pressured into making any one decision. Talk to other people before you make any decision on a conclusive decision on behalf of your film. Do you have a career goal? And what is it? My career goal is that when it is warm in the summer that on every Friday I can take off early and go swimming in the river by my house. That's my career goal. And also my other career goal is that I can continue to do this work. I really love this work. I feel, I just feel so happy that, I mean, Liz, you and I have talked about this for years, but like, there's just such a joy of like being able to control your time and who you work with and to have like work in a place where your little dog can sleep on a pillow beside you. And, you know, no matter how stressful a call, you can just, you know, you can like be in your space. And yes, that that's my career goal is to be able to keep doing this. And to be able to like, and to be able to do it, like not feeling like I have to shape my personality to fit something else. Like I want to be like a somewhat introverted person and like nice and kind to people and like maybe get better at working on boundaries, but like to just like not feel like I got to come in like busting balls and, you know, <laughs> putting on a persona. I want to I want to be yeah. myself and do this work. Yeah. Just yeah. quick aside, I think you can right now, right this second, take off and go swim in in the lake by your house. It's a little cold today, but okay. I think I'll like go out and like mow the lawn or something. <laughs> Yeah, the river by my house to go swimming in is like a dream of mine too. So I still need to find the river. But yeah, that sounds amazing. Last question. We don't have time. We'll just do the very last question. Is making movies hard? Oh, God, yes. Yeah, (laughs) unquestionably. Making movies is hard. I don't even know. I've never made a movie, but it seems really hard. And distributing movies is really hard. It's a lot of work, but you know, it's worth it. Thank you for being on the show, Mia. It's my pleasure. Yay, I loved it. Mia. It was so fun. Oh, this Thank was you great. for having I, me. So much fun. Thank you for doing this. Well, last question. Where should people go if they want to learn more about you oh, or find you and work with yes. you? Like, give us the plug. Fourth Act Film, www.fourthactfilm, Mia Bruno Film, Google it. <laughs> You'll find me. Hire Mia. She's worth every single penny. Every she wor- She's worth you. more thank than you. the pennies. Than she thank turns. you. Thank you. You're very kind. Do you love making movies as hard and you want to listen to more episodes? Jump over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash MMIH and you can listen to the entire back catalog of episodes for just $1.99 a month. That's an additional 300 episodes that aren't on iTunes that you can listen to whenever you please. But without any more blibber blabber. Back to the show. Alric, what do you remember about our talk with Mia? I remember that Mia was very smart and she was very, it was very interesting. So we don't really talk, don't talk to distribution people very often. You know, we've probably probably talked to like maybe two or something (laughs) this whole time. Yeah. So like, I think it was really fun 
to kind of hear her side of everything and like her experience, especially branching off on her own as a distribution consultant. Cause like, I think that is something that just, despite you being one, like I still like trying to wrap my head around exactly what that means. Like, you know, I think it was a little, you know, challenging, but like she did a good job of explaining it really well. Yeah. Now I have a good idea of the value that, you know, Mia and you and other people like you bring to, to filmmakers. It's, I thought it was a really interesting conversation. And I, and I feel like it's, it's just kind of in line with a lot of the conversations we've been having lately where it's like, you know, mm. like the money isn't there. So do this for other reasons. And these are some of the benefits and the things that you can gain from, you know, this movie being released and, and you making this project, you know, but like, like put the money aside, like the, the fame and f- the, the fortune part of it. Forget that. <laughs> yes. There's not a lot of fortune for uh, indie filmmakers right now. But what, what do you remember from our conversation? Yeah. Well, I just loved it. It was like uh, just a reminder of every conversation I've had with Mia over the, for the past few years. And just to kind of give Mia even more credit, I was working somewhere and talking to Mia about it. And she was the one who encouraged me to strike out on my own and to be my own boss. And not many people are like that who are going to fight for you in your corner and say, you have value. You know, I was telling her what my rates were going to be. And she's like, charge more, charge more than that. Like she kept on pushing me into very uncomfortable places that worked out because of her expertise and her awareness of the value of our work in distribution consultancy. So I just wanted to give her all the credit in the world for being an amazing cheerleader for independent filmmakers, but also for her peers. So thank you, Mia. I I think you will listen to this. So thank you. Well, you know what time it is, Liz? It's what? time to play the game. So Eric and I have been playing the game the last couple of weeks where I've actually come up with questions for Eric, which was fun. Oh. I think it was a very different one than what we normally get. So that was cool. But uh, the game, for people who don't know, if you're listening for the first time, this is um, a game that Eric Toms invented where we basically, he comes up with like a indie filmmaking quandary or, or, or conundrum, like some sort of problem that needs to be solved on an indie set. And then the question is asked blind to either Liz or I by either Liz or I. Then, you know, we come up with an answer on the spot blind. So I'm going to ask the question today. Liz has not heard this question. I actually haven't even read it yet. I'm going to read it for the first time on the show just because I think that's fun. And we'll see what happens. So here we go. You've been hired by a production company to shoot a low-budget feature film. They have agreed to pay you your rate, plus a small percentage of the back end of the film. Incredible. Since they have a good track record, having produced and sold multiple films in the past, they have some distribution already in place. Production is set to start in two weeks when you get a call saying that due to a number of catastrophes, the original shoot schedule has been cut drastically from 20 days down to nine days. Holy schmoly. The entire film takes place in three locations that are all very close to one another with minimal cast but complex scenes. Do you A. Walk away from the project knowing that the light timeline, the tight timeline, means that your final product's quality will greatly suffer and possibly hurt your reputation as a director? B. Buckle in and dive into the project knowing that the production will be a whirlwind, but with the right coordination, it can be done. C. Agree to direct the film under a pseudonym so if things go horribly wrong, your name won't be sullied. D. Other. 
what do you do, director? What do you do? God, that is not ideal. (laughs) 20 days to nine days. That's horrible. Jeez. What I immediately jumped to in my mind, which may not be a solution, and I'd be curious what you 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 thought or you were thinking is, I thought about mobile camera, multiple operators, and tons of rehearsals. Like, I just thought... I want to make it work. There's a reason why I said yes to this project. Nine days. I mean, I did a a feature in 12 days. Like, I could maybe do one in nine. Like, that seems possible. I I don't know what the script is about. Like, there's a lot of things that are unknown. But if there's a world where you can shoot multiple angles of coverage at the same time, and there was budget for that... I think it could reduce the complications that do, that are due to the shortening of the schedule. So that feels like a little bit of a band-aid. Like I've never done that before. I've never shot outside of I I directed like this multi-cam show for a little bit in like early 2000s, but that was like everyone was sitting in the same place, right? So to do multi-cam where people are moving seems very scary, but I feel like I, I would want to still go for it. And I I don't like the idea of doing something under a pseudonym. It's like, it's so hard to get any credit for, for making a movie. Like, I don't really want to go through all that and not get the credit for everything I've done. So... And I don't want to walk away because you and I've had so many conversations about how hard it is to get a project off the ground that it uh, that's very difficult for me to say I'm out. So it would be how do I create setups that allow us to consolidate coverage as quickly as possible? Yeah, I love that answer. Fantastic answer. I say something similar. I'll say first look at the script. Like whatever can be cut will be cut. We will cut this sucker down as much as possible to make it work with nine days. And then, yeah, I love the idea of doing multicam. And I would probably also just say global lighting. Yes. You know, for the three locations, because, you know, there's only three locations. And if you're going to be in there across nine days for, you know, three days each, like presumably, or however you break it down, you know, you're going to be able to do a lot in that space, given that it's already going to be pre-lit. So if you can have everything all pre-lit and all set ahead of time, then you can come in there with your team and, you know, you do maybe slight adjustments per shot, but maybe you just like, if, especially if it's not a genre movie, if it's not a horror or a thriller, just let it be f- more flat. Like, it doesn't really matter. Like, if it's a comedy or even like a lighter drama, it's probably okay, you know? Yeah. So... That would be what I would start with. And yeah, I would definitely wouldn't abandon it. I definitely wouldn't quit. I definitely wouldn't go under a pseudonym because, you know, one of the things that I think we probably, I don't know, I think we talked about before and I think we both know is that half the time people aren't going to watch your work anyways. They're just going <laughs> to look at your list of credits and be like, oh yeah, yeah. they did that movie. Oh, cool. That was cool. It's got that actor in it. That's very cool. All right. Direct yeah. this movie for me, director person. Like, you know. <laughs> So I feel like just getting through the project and like you not hating it. I think that's like the most important thing. So if you can make it and not hate it and and figure out a way to shoot it within the time you have where you're like, okay, there's a good story in here. It's not the story we started with, but uh, it's pretty cool. That's great. Yeah. And plus they're paying you. Fuck, man. Take that money. Jeez Louise. 
But wait, I mean, like if I reduce my fee a little bit, could I get one more day? Like part of me is like, is that on the table? Then I I'm might. Sure, I'm sure anything is. I mean, you know, you can negotiate. Like especially if they if they they seem like they have. Well, I don't know. I guess in 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 Eric's world, because it's like it's it sounds like it's a well funded movie, but like then they can't shoot more than nine days. So there must be some reason why you can't shoot more than. So you probably don't get an extra day no matter what. Because yeah, it's, it's probably it like a scheduling sound, issue, right? It's yeah. yeah. It's not a it's not an issue that can be solved by money, you know. There's always pickups, and I know that that's not included True. in this, but like every single well, whatever. I mean, my two features both had pickups. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, pickups, and they were vital. The pickups were vital for the film. Yeah. So I know he's not allowing us that in this question, but maybe we could assert ourselves and say going to always do pickups. pickups. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's also like in this, this world of, of like the question, like that's always an option. Like there, there, there is no like timeline time fuse. Unless he's going to say that for some reason, like the, the lead actor is terminally ill and will die in 10 days and like cannot be in the movie. And they want to spend their last days on earth being on your film set. Uh, yeah. Right. Ooh. So I don't think that we're not going to imagine that that's part of uh, Eric's question. No, but yeah. What do you guys think? Uh, would, would you do the same or would you walk away? Do you not want your names potentially sullied by uh, a failure of a film? You know, I guys, I feel like unless you're at like the toppest level, like that doesn't really matter. Like unless you're like making like some humongous studio feature, like it, I don't think any failure of a movie is going to sully your name. And even if it does, like, I mean, look at the people who've made terrible movies, how many chances they get, you know, like they get chances after chance after chance. So like but they usually have one hit first, right? Yeah, it's true. I mean, but like Josh Trank, you know, like he had that terrible, terrible thing with Fantastic Four, got fired off of Star Wars and he's still making movies. So like, you know, whatever, like it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> I just feel like it's like it's like it's like the whole like there's a couple of like these things I think people have that are not true. Like, oh, like the fresh the first feature having to be like big is like a, a thing that people think that's not true. Uh, oh, you're going to be your name will be sullied by a feature you make. I think that's definitely not really true very often either. And then also like this whole idea where people are going to steal your ideas and make your movie and like take it away. That's also no, like totally not, not true. true. But it's all these things that people worry about that are like not true. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like put those ideas out of your head. Stop thinking about those. And just go make movies. But yeah, I would love to know what you guys think. Do you agree? Disagree? Uh, you can send us a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at making movies is hard.com and let us know if you really like the show you can leave us a review on itunes and finally check us out on facebook instagram and twitter at mmih podcast and youtube at making movies is hard podcast you can check out the international screenwriters association or the isa they are an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through a number of programs they offer including publishing your logline to a network of industry professionals consultation courses contests and of course their top 25 writers list that features some of their best writers so head over to www.networkisa.org to sign up for free today thanks so much to me and bruno for coming on the show thanks to our editor jeff reimut for doing the editing thanks to robert jones for handling all of our social media and thanks to our producer eric toms for being awesome thank you all for listening and we'll talk to y'all next week um okay you talk and i'll think of something yeah. Yeah. I think you can, yeah. Oh, I have to ask you first, though. You can also toss it to me if you want. <laughs>